a Podcast One production. I'm Charles Fairley and for 30 years I've worked for big media companies like the Nine Network, Sony Music, AAP and Win Television. And I started Unsung Business Heroes because I wanted to give small business owners a voice, many of those small business owners that I met through my work, but also because my dad was a business owner. And so helping small business and marketing and getting to know the motivation behind business is part of my life. One thing that gave me the idea for this concept was that my dad had actually been interviewed in a book about 15 years ago and he was a boat builder as I mentioned up on the central coast and uh, you know he had 35 staff and uh, worked long hours you know he's there Saturdays and Sundays and um, I just realized that when he was coming to retirement where was all the record of of his achievements and his accomplishments and how could I tell my grandchildren about it when he was no longer around and so I really wanted to record all that information and create a little documentary about his life if you like so I, I think that really motivated me to go out and see other people in the similar situations. We started out with three different criteria to pick the Unsung Business Heroes, but that was all quantitative things like turnover and staff numbers and how long they'd been in business. But all that went out the window when we started really talking to them heart to heart and they came out with these amazing stories of challenges, whether it was mental health or financial challenges or you know family situations. And those were the real stories that we engaged with and we felt other people would engage with and learn from and, and we really wanted to promote those aspects of it. We interviewed Susan in a boardroom in Sydney. Interviewing Susan, I was just amazed at how she managed to achieve what she has as a single mother with a young child. When Susan was young, they grew up so poor, Susan was telling us that she couldn't afford clothes so she had, she had pyjamas and she had a school uniform and that was about it. She just rotated between the two. So it's just remarkable the life lessons that she's learnt through her family. Susan's got a great business now. She helps people in the space where they're looking for the next best investment in property. So she's helping mums and dads out there to make educated decisions and she's really making a difference in terms of securing people's future. So their investments will be more positive and have a better income for those clients. So Susan's in a great space. She really gets a kick out of helping people. Colour is an acronym for all of my family and the people that I support with this business and it's just a daily focus on what my purpose is, that it's about providing you know, a better future for myself and my family but also for my clients who I treat very much like family. Mm. That's really the running um, mission statement if you like is if they were one of my family is this what I would still do. You know, family for me is everything and not just for my family, but for other people's families as well. So where does that come from, then, Susan? Uh, it probably comes from understanding the importance of succession planning and having options, especially as a woman. Um, being the child of a single mother who, in, you know, in 1978, my parents split up and my brother and I were the only children whose parents were divorced in our school at that point in time. So I often think about what that must have been like for my mum in 1978 as a single mother of two kids in Brisbane, 
you know, uh, not the most progressive place at the time. I'm sure, you know, divorce was more common in, in other areas, but it certainly wasn't there. Um, so, you know, I think about how desperate things were at times. You know, we didn't eat every day. You know, we, um, we really struggled, you know. And that's not due to the lack of my dad's contribution. That has more to do with my mum's inability to manage what she had and to even really understand what to do with it. So giving women choices, education, uh, that's something I'm very passionate about. And you talked before about giving back. Uh, the charity I support is um, Children's Education Foundation and it's a charity based in Vietnam that helps the poorest but brightest kids in Vietnam continue through their education, which is the only proven way to break the cycle of poverty. That was true for me. I, I think having those choices, having that fallback position, having something that, you know, a foundation that makes you feel like you're going to be all right. It, you know, it's those feelings actually that are really important. It's not the money amount, it's about feeling like you've got some sort of safety net. And that's a big part of the, you know, the people that I help. I, I mean, I've, I've got such a broad range of clients, but one very clear segment is 40-ish year old women that just suddenly go, you know, I didn't get married and I don't have kids. You know, how am I going to be able to provide for my superannuation? You know, how am I going to feel comfortable in retirement? At this stage, I'm going to be earning less than I earn now, and that's hard enough. So, you know, I've got a group of women that are now on their third and fourth properties, and that's really exciting for me. Mm. So what, you would have been under 10? Six. Six, yeah. Big part of your life, isn't it, eh? Yeah, for six years. It was very defining. Um, yeah. After that, I went to live with my dad because I was, I was just so stressed. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't have clothes. We didn't, we didn't have anything. So uh, I remember going to a school party in my school uniform because that was the only clothes I had other than my pyjamas. You know, look, it was, it was feast and famine a little bit, and I think that kind of is, is indicative of how difficult it was for mum to manage things. So I think there was probably a fortnightly cycle to that, but as a kid, you just, you know, those days you don't eat just feel like years, you know. Um, it's really stressful. Uh, and especially, we were actually living in quite an affluent area and going to schools with a lot of very affluent children, and that was, I think, even harder. Um, because there was a real shame associated with that. Yeah, sure there was. Yeah. So how did that affect your personality? Your, I don't know, because I would have thought at six years old could really affect your life in a bad way. I don't really think about that. To me, it was actually a really fun, creative time as well. Um, very resourceful. You know, my mum would have done anything for us kids, and we knew that. So. Yeah, we'll go to, um, Freeps is one of the fondest memories I have, which stood for free entertainment in the parks on Sundays. And it was the Bushwhacker Band at um, Brisbane Botanical Gardens and Life Be In It. So mum would sit down, you know, in a picnic blanket and watch the concerts. And I, my brother wasn't there as much, he was a bit older than me, but I would just run off and, you know, come back with painted socks and, you know, been doing races and just hanging out and having lots and lots of fun. So we went to lots of uh, exhibitions and galleries and yeah, whatever mum could afford she did for us, you know, and very passionate about education. And I think that's the, the legacy I'm most grateful for, you know, having the education that I have. A lot of experiences when you're young have a big impact on your life. Yeah, yeah, I'm very resilient, I'm very resourceful. 
I know where where food is with every block, you know, within a block of wherever I've lived in my life, you know. Um, I used to watch Peter Russell Clark at 5.55 and whatever he cooked, I would make, you know, and if that meant finding veggies around the neighbourhood or whatever, I would, you know. So, yeah, and incredibly optimistic. There is nothing in my life that's going to be harder than that. Mm. So every day is a good day. You know, the bars are pretty low. <laughs> every day I eat's a good day, you know. So, um, you know, I think that's given me a certain fearlessness when it comes to business. You know, I've been... I mean, I had my first business when I was 10, you know, but I've so, been, uh, I was a little, you know, in Brisbane, there's lots of different exotic seed pods and, you know, um, bark and s- stuff on the in the gutters. And I've always been pretty, you know, artistic and creative. And I made a stack of little animals out of these seed pods and put on little googly eyes and faces and sold them at the church fete and made 20 bucks. 20 bucks then was a lot of money for... For each one? No, 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 for the whole day. <laughs> no, like, you know, 20 cents or 50 cents, but I made a lot of them, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a TV, we didn't have a phone, we didn't have a car. So, you know, we had a lot of time on hands. <laughs> but I did have Childcraft and that was the World Book Encyclopedia, Kids Encyclopedia. And, um, yeah, they had one whole volume, Arts and Crafts, and I think I pretty much made everything in that mm, book. Wow. Um, puppets out of paper bags and, you know, things out of paddle pop sticks and whatever. So when you get through stuff like that on a regular basis, it gives you a certain confidence as well and courage to try things. I think that's one of the most frustrating things I see in business is when people have these great ideas and they plan it to the nth degree and look for funding and all kinds of stuff like that and then go and spend it on fancy office spaces and office furniture and it's like, you don't need any of that. Just start, you know, like have a bit of a mud map for sure but I don't believe in planning, you know, writing extensive business plans and understand the purpose of it if you're, you know, other institutions that might require that. But if it's just for you, doesn't matter how much you analyse market share and, uh, you know, need for your product or service, you're actually not going to know that until you get started. Mm. So I've had been self-employed since I was 19, had like proper businesses and, you know, they've always done really well, but I've started them just with the idea and not really much else, just a huge amount of self-belief and motivation and just did it. You know, and to me that was the easiest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, it, it definitely shaped me, but I think in a, in a fantastic way. So what was the business at 19? Uh, I had a ceramics manufacturing business. So when I was at university, I, my, for my first degree, I did a um, Bachelor of Arts in International Relations. I think by about the age of 21 or 22, I was pretty fluent in five languages and was very much headed towards international relations, the UN, that sort of space. But at the same time, I was lecturing in fine arts at Melbourne University and running their ceramics activity centre. And that's actually when I first realised I was, I was pretty good at business. Basically, the reason I got the job was because uh, that centre was closing down because it wasn't making money. And I didn't know that. I was just tapped on the shoulder because I was using the ceramics room all the time because I enjoyed it. And this you know, lecturer came to me and said, are you interested in teaching first year's ceramics? And I just went, no, I've only just started myself. And, um, and she said, well, 
you know, it pays $35 an hour. <laughs> and this is in 1992 or 93, and I was earning $6 an hour as a waitress in this really awful <laughs> place. And um, yeah, and I just went, all right, I'll see what I can do. And she said, I just need you to come up with a course for 10 weeks. What had happened is they already had students enrolled and they couldn't cut the course with because they were already enrolled. So it was really only expected to go for a semester, but, um, and it had no budget, but it also had very few materials. So it's gonna be a pretty hard course for me to run. It was already hard for me to run because I didn't really know what I was doing. But I you know, went to the library, got some ceramics books and uh, came up with a 10-week course. And then I rang ceramics suppliers. This was at Melbourne University. I rang ceramics suppliers around Melbourne, actually around Australia, and asked them to send me some samples saying that, you know, this was for the university course. I'm the new lecturer. I'm not really sure what we're going to use and what glazes fit, what clay for this kiln, blah, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, sure, we'll send you some samples. I, I was expecting that they might send a couple of bags of clay and maybe some glazes. They sent pallets of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I had enough materials to run with no budget for about two years. Um, but what I did in that time was not only teach that course, but create uh, three or four short courses during the week for the community. It wasn't just for students at the university. There were 26,000 students at Melbourne University at that time. I ran a lunchtime course and a couple of nighttime courses. I did some hand building courses and, um, you know, throwing courses. Um, Ghost had just come out, so everyone wanted to <laughs> do pottery. <laughs> A lot, of, a lot of young guys wanted to do pottery. <laughs> there was a disclaimer at the beginning of the course. By the way, this is not going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, I was, you know, earning a really good amount of money and the fine arts course actually over that year and then the next two, three, four years made the most profit than any other part of the fine arts department. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I was able to turn it around to, from something that was about to close to something that was incredibly popular. Mm. Then I, after I left uni, I um, started my own ceramics business and was exporting to four countries and supplying 60 shops around Australia. So these were the things you were making yourself? Mm. Yeah. And what were you making? Uh, I was making tableware that had really interesting shapes and very minimalist and designer. So I had been in Japan for four months, sort of working on that aesthetic. I'd been to a couple of potteries in Japan and mm. learning more techniques. And so that's what I, what I set up. So this is when, you know, the only option you had for buying ceramics was pretty much going to Coles and getting those brown, chunky mugs, you know, that every family had, you know, a green, I think brown, green and blue, they came in. Um, this is before IKEA, before there was really that Australian appreciation for a design ethic. So, you know, I was showcased by Vogue Living, Bell Interiors, you know, like all of those magazines were like, wow, finally. So, so it was a new thing in that space and, um, I, you know, I had a lot of media attention pretty early on and therefore was able to get that distribution going pretty quickly. I opened up a shop because I was living in the Blue Mountains at the time and it was um, named the City of the Arts while I was there, but there was nowhere for me to sell my ceramics other than through art galleries. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted it, to, they were functional pieces and I wanted people to use them. So, you know, I set up a shop and 
you know, sh showcased a lot of local artists there as well. And then the ceramics business, when I looked at it just from the hard financials and the amount of hours involved in the return, it was, I would have been better off working at McDonald's. So um, I wound that down. I also was starting to get RSI in my fingers and wrist. And so, and the shop was doing really well. So I just focused on how I could create a better brand for the shop. Um, and then started up a ceramic, uh, cosmetics company called Indigo Spa. So the shop was called Indigo Duck and the cosmetics line, which was just like all face creams and body lotion and bar salts and stuff, was called Indigo Spa. So it was like a, um, you know, extension of the branding for mm. Indigo Duck. Um, and again, I didn't really want that to go anywhere, but there was a lot of interest from other shops. And I think those magazines already knew how I was, so they're, they're like, what are you doing now, you know? Mm. So had that featured in a couple of magazines as well and you know that did really well and yeah but then I wound down the shop and wound that down and realized that I had to stop doing businesses that required my physical you know my hands and needed to use my head again so um, I did a couple of businesses that were around marketing and branding had a lead generation company this is like pre-Google, so that's 2003. And look again, this, you know, it's what I talk about in terms of not really having much of a plan. One of the things I noticed with Indigo Duck, my shop, is, you know, I had a lot of regulars. How did I talk to them in a, in a way that was meaningful to them, but also created something for me as a business? So I'd ask people, you know, do you want to be on our mailing list for um, when we have specials or to try new products? and Everyone was interested, you know, it's a small town. Everyone loved that shop and it just was the easiest thing in the world. I'd mail out to 100 people and 80 people would come. We'd have these wine and cheese members only nights for new products or, you know, that type of thing. Or pre-Christmas, um, free gift wrapping and delivery and, you know, building in that service and making, like I said before, having a really solid brand. Which is funny because I felt like I didn't really get marketing. It was all just intuitive, you know. But then I realised how, what a difference that made to the business. And so I started applying those principles to other businesses that also didn't get it, but didn't really know that they had other options and those, other yeah, in the mountains. So uh, it started when someone approached me and said, look, can, you're doing really well with this, can you help me? So I did and then created a business out of that, shut the shop down and had a, a small team of telemarketers that were appointment setting and lead generation, renting databases and calling out. And in that time, we were doing work for a company that was releasing a self-managed super fund product. And finance is very heavily legislated. There's a lot of compliance around finance. And unless you're a financial planner, you cannot give advice. So I was very concerned about um, my group of telemarketers being on the phone, especially to retirees who might ask them a lot of questions, even in really innocuous ones like, what do you think? Any answer could be potentially construed as advice. So I put everyone through the financial planning course. Um, but it was really easy. It was an online thing back then, PS146. A or B or something. So, but I did that too and I actually really enjoyed it. And I, you know, starting to earn a bit of money and it's like, okay, what do I do with this? I'd already 
been investing in property from a really young age. So by the time I was 30, I had a pretty impressive um, property portfolio. I had my daughter at 30 and was a single mother pretty quickly after that. So with a, a new baby and, um, it, yeah, I think I was running three businesses at that point. And the property that I had, I was able to pretty much take three years off, you know, just sort of manage the various properties. I still had the shop actually at that stage. So I had the shop, the telemarketing business and a skip business in <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> Diversification. Um, but then I, I realised I'd made a really disastrous decision on one of the properties and that nearly killed me. What, selling or buying I bought the wrong kind of property in the wrong place at the wrong time. I did everything wrong, right? And that took me a really long time to recover from that. From being in a situation where you could yeah. go through years <laughs> and not work. Yeah. Well, also I moved from from the Blue Mountains to Sydney, right? Yeah. And so was this a property to live in or property as an investment? No, these are all investments. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, the property that I was living in was a property that I built and uh, designed and built myself on a block of land that cost $27,000, you know, <laughs> so, and sold it for like 500, you know, mm. so that, you know, had done really well. So I'd done really well, but anyway, this one property decision threatened to unravel everything that I'd created over the previous 10 years. So I moved down to Sydney, still doing marketing type stuff, and once I started to recover, I'd, I'd done an MBA now at this stage, so fast forward a few years, but I'm still desperately trying to hold on to this property, which is costing me $25,000 a year in interest and not getting very much income back in rent. So when, I, when I, I did get rid of the property and then when I finally got back on my feet, I realised I had a chunk of money to invest again. I knew that property was the right vehicle for me, right? I've never been that co comfortable with shares. I feel like you really need to know what you're doing and you need to be very proactive. Uh, I don't have time for that, and so I'm aware of that. It also doesn't fit my risk profile, right? I'm not comfortable investing in a company that could potentially you know, go bankrupt and take all of your money, right? Without any warning or rhyme or reason and certainly without any input from me. So. Um, I wasn't very comfortable with that. I'm, I don't mind investing a little bit on highly speculative shares with the understanding that I may never see that money again. But they're, they're small amounts of money. For me, that's a, it's like playing, you know, the lottery or something. That's just, you know, a side thing. But in terms of real wealth creation, property for me has always been the right vehicle. But I didn't want to make that mistake again, right, obviously. So I started really researching what is it that made a good investment, right? That fit my risk profile, okay? There's a lot of different strategies out, of there, uh, out there. A lot of people like buying secondhand property and renovating. Again, after building a house, I don't want to pick up a hammer, much less, you know, mitre, you know, skirting boards and architraves and the rest of it. I just wanted something where I could set and forget and it would be compounding that growth over time. So I began this research methodology and that's what we use today at Colour Property. We have 120 check boxes that are based on macro, micro, design and due diligence criteria and unless a property matches all of those it won't make it into our master portfolio. That's the methodology I've been perfecting over the last 10, 10 to 15 years. And I'm pretty happy with it. You know, in the last three years of business, I've seen that proven every time. 
you know, not most of the time, every single time. Every client of mine has made money through that and made money at the beginning, which is what's most important because it insulates your investment. So for most people, that's a big leap from pottery to, yeah. to property. But for me, it actually totally makes sense. You know, it's, uh, it's about understanding the fundamentals, you know, of any business really and, and um, getting it right as much as you can and, and then continuing to perfect whatever it is that you have over time. But for me, it's just so important to get it right for my clients. You know, going back to the principles of colour, their family, you know, and, and honestly, the, the relationship I have with my clients becomes very close very quickly to the point where I get invited to weddings and parties and christenings and, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's um, it, because it's an ongoing relationship. It's not just about understanding my clients' investment strategy and finding or matching one of our properties for them. It's about managing the entire end-to-end -end process for them. What advice would you give someone to do a bit of research, you know, see what's out there, see what your competitors are doing, try and understand the landscape as much as you can, understand things like pricing and offerings and who else might help you, understand what kind of business it is from a really root level. Is it a referral business? Is it a mass use business? Is it a high turnover? Is it a long lead time? You know, understanding those sorts of factors. But don't get bogged down in the planning. So no, if you've got a great business idea, you know, put a bit of money behind it, not a lot, and just get started. Um, even if that just means testing it, you know, at markets or within various referral groups or, um, you know, family and friends, find groups of like-minded people on Facebook or LinkedIn that you can trust over time or tap into the networks that you already have. And part of this philosophy is fail early and fail often because it's cheap. It doesn't cost you reputation, it doesn't cost you money, but you'll start to finesse it. You can't do that unless you've started. If you like that story, you should really listen to Jared Maloof's story. Jared is the founder of Jared Maloof and Partners legal compensation firm in Sydney, but his story is so emotional and so touching when he talks about what his dad told him when Jared was just an eight-year-old. So you should really have a listen to that one. Unsung Business Heroes was presented by me, Charles Fairley, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. The executive producer was Jenny Goggin. If you'd like to see the videos of my interviews with these unsung business heroes, go to unsungbusinessheroes.com.au. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search for Unsung Business Heroes on iTunes.